Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's July 26, 2018. I am in New York at 30 Rock, and Haley Bird and David Byler are, well, Haley, you're you're in Washington, D.C. I have no idea where you are, David. I'm in New Jersey right now. Okay, so we're scattered all over the place, but, but at least we're all in the same time zone, which is somewhat unusual. Well, um, David, I want to talk to you about uh, your latest swing seat model, um, which has really become the indispensable look at what is going on with the with the midterm elections, particularly with the United States Senate. But Haley, let's start with you, because you had a very interesting piece about the big announcement yesterday with at, at the White House about trade negotiations with the EU and it, you know, my sense is that that a lot of the media is portraying this as somehow a significant development, uh, reducing trade, uh, reducing trade tensions, backing off from the trade war. Your piece suggests that what actually happened was much ado about nothing. Is that is that fair? So the president says that he won these concessions from uh, the EU based on the pressure that he put on them with tariffs, uh, the steel and aluminum tariffs that he implemented for national security reasons. Um, but instead, they've sort of agreed to keep doing what they've been doing. Uh, the main part of this that's new is that they are going to work towards having no tariffs on non-auto industrial goods, which sounds like a big ambitious idea, it but does. it leaves out agriculture, it leaves out autos, and that leaves open the, the possibility that the Trump administration could follow through on those automobile tariffs that Trump has been threatening to do. Uh, other people reported this as if the those tariffs were off the table. Uh, I believe Wilbur Ross said recently that they're still definitely on the table. So this isn't that much of a change. Uh, the other The other aspects of this agreement are uh, things that we have seen in other deals and other other places of collaboration between the EU and the United States for a long time now. So the actual substance is they, they basically made a deal to talk with one another and at least not escalate the back and forth tariffs beyond where they are right now. But are the tariffs that have been put in place, were, were, were they removed? Are they still there? They are still there. Okay. So really, nothing really changed, did it? No. There's this very what the president is most excited about, uh, judging by the way that he's been talking about this agreement, is that they have agreed to buy more soybeans, um, which there are big questions about what that means. Uh, if the European Union like is going to actually uh, compel businesses to buy soybeans from the United States, which just seems sort of um, unlikely at this point. So it's all of it is very vague and it's hard to quantify what they're looking for in this. Well, we're obviously getting closer to the midterm elections. Uh, th this seemed as if over the last 24 hours that the Trump White House and, and the Republicans have de-escalated, at least in some in, in some areas, they de-escalated the trade war or wanted to appear to be de-escalating the trade war. And then, of course, we get the announcement that uh, Vladimir Putin is not, in fact, coming uh, to Washington, D.C. Why, why did that happen? I'm not entirely sure, Charlie. Um, I think there was a lot of pushback from Republicans on Capitol Hill. And I think after the week in Helsinki um, and, and just the, put, the blowback that they received from that, uh, they were looking to avoid future instances in which the president could slip up and say that he sides with Vladimir Putin instead of the intelligence community. Um, I th that's what went into that decision. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it, it was a rather you know quick turnaround on all of that, and this of course comes the day after Mike Pompeo testifies, uh, you know, in a somewhat contentious Senate hearing about uh, about foreign policy. And I thought that the point that he was clearly trying to make was uh, was interesting, which is 
a, a, I would say, an enhanced version of the don't pay any attention to that guy, what he says, the president, just look at his policies. And, and Pompeo kept coming back to, you know, that these are the administration policies that are really, really, really tough on, on Russia. And whatever the president says, well, he didn't quote, you know, he was sort of dancing on, on the on the tightrope of saying that what the president says was not, in fact, policy. But really, wasn't that really what Pompeo's message was, that that the that the, the that he wants the the Trump administration to be evaluated evaluated on what it does, not what it says. Exactly, and I, I think that also goes with you know President Trump's message to uh, people he was speaking to that you know what you're seeing and what you are hearing is not happening. Um, it's it's just this denial of what the president actually stands for, and you've seen this with immigration and with healthcare and with FISA reauthorization, where the president will take the stance that is not the Republican Party line on the, on something, and then you'll have his aides and staffers come back and change his opinion, like on an official level, instead of his sort of off the cuff style of deciding things. Well, it's even more complicated. He's not. He will say things that are not only you know not in line with Republican thinking, but not in line with the the actions and the position of his own administration. <laughs> That's the. And this has got to be very very confusing, not just for Americans and members of the Senate, but for foreign countries as well. You know who speaks for the United States? Okay, so we're seeing these sanctions put in place against the Russians, and then of course you have what happened in Helsinki, and it's like okay, you know which are we supposed to believe? I was struck by really. I, I use the word contentious, but I mean it was uh, it was uh, quite a remarkable back and forth between uh, remarkably hostile back and forth between at least some of the senators and 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 Mike Pompeo. Um, it was um, I, I don't know whether you you sat through it or or, or watched much of it, but um, there were a couple of moments there where you thought that uh, this was uh, th- this was this was pretty lit. <laughs> yes, and and our colleague uh, Jenna Lifitz. Uh, wrote about that for the standard, I believe yesterday when after the hearing happened. Um, it it was one of those opportunities where they could publicly call out the White House and and ask them why they were behaving the way that they're behaving. Uh, there was a similar situation this morning with the Republican conference. They got to meet with Larry Kudlow and Peter Navarro, um, who are economic and trade advisors at the White House. Um, and a lot of them were just looking for answers on what the long-term goal is on tariffs and trade. And they came away from it not really being clear on that, even after, you know, spending an hour asking them questions and having this listening really? session. Yes. Really? I mean, that, that seems to be one of the, the, the subtexts. The administration says, look, guys, we actually, if you, if you ignore the tweets, if you ignore the president's comments, we actually do have a pretty coherent strategy <laughs> um, on, on all of these issues. But uh, folks on Capitol Hill, you know, are struggling, seem like they're struggling to figure out what that coherent strategy is. And today didn't change that dynamic? No. No, it did not. And and the message that that I heard from several members who, as they left the meeting, was that the message was basically, stick with us, trust us on this. And they didn't really explain what the long-term plan is. And, you know, Kudlow and Navarro have a lot of differences on what trade policy should be. Uh, Kudlow is more of a free trader. He agrees with Mick Mulvaney on things. And then you have Navarro, who is a very hardcore protectionist, who is in favor of these tariffs. So it's also just like mixed messages within the administration. So that makes it hard for Republicans in Congress to judge them on what they're actually looking for. 
The reaction this week um, was 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 interesting. You know, after it was, it, it has been, it has become more and more obvious that uh, that the trade dispute is really hammering um, American agriculture and farmers are really hurting. That the president came up with the idea of a twelve billion dollar uh, bailout for uh, for agriculture, which um, certainly generated as as much open criticism. Um, on the part of uh, you know from conservatives on on the hill that I've heard in quite some time that that did not go over well at all did it no absolutely not and and something we saw with house republicans is you know they're generally more reluctant to uh, speak up about something that they disagree with with the administration uh, than their colleagues are in the senate and uh, so it was more difficult to get them to talk about it the day that it happened. But today, uh, like Mia Love told me she disagreed with it very strongly. And and a lot of those members who are in favor of free trade say, you know, why are we causing problems and then fixing them by spending more money? Uh, that's, that's what they see this as. They see it as corporate welfare. They see it um, as an entitlement program. And, and it's, it's a self-inflicted wound because these tariffs are in place because of the Trump administration's protectionist policies. And it's not even really working in negotiating these bilateral free trade agreements. This is also one of those moments where we would think that members of Congress would would step back and say, you know, what are we potted plants here? The president (laughs) is unilaterally imposing these massive tariffs, which are taxes without congressional approval, and then coming up with $12 billion bailout, again, without any congressional uh, approval. but there's no indication that there's going to be any sort of coherent legislative action about uh, either of these things, is there? No. And you do have people who are pushing for that. You have Bob Corker and Pat Toomey in the Senate. You have um, Warren Davidson in the House, who's introdu- introduced a version of Mike Lee's bill, which would give Congress a say in all unilateral trade actions. Um, and he's actually gotten some more co-sponsors on that bill recently. I talked to him this morning. Um, Tom, Tom Cole from Oklahoma, he's a member of the leadership team. So th- there are some people who see that this is a necessity, but in within leadership, uh, the odds of this these bills actually coming up for a vote is extremely slim. Why? Paul Ryan sees it more as a political thing right now. Um, I think he's, you know, a lot of his members are up for a tight reelection um, and just splitting with the White House so publicly, I think they fear would not send the right message with voters. Well, given some of the polls that have been out lately, uh, sticking with Donald Trump doesn't seem necessarily like a slam dunk um, either. Um, David, I'm going to get to you in a moment, but I, <laughs> one, one more question here. Um, Haley, what is the reaction to uh, Jim Jordan's announcement uh, that he's running for speaker? It's interesting about the timing of this. Um, yeah. every, everyone knows that Jim Jordan is probably not going to be speaker. He does not have enough allies within the Republican conference just based on uh, the Freedom Caucus's sort of negotiating style in the past few years. Uh, he's made a lot of enemies, but some people see it as more of like a leverage thing. So what the Freedom Caucus wants in leadership is to have a, like a greater say in the legislative process. Uh, they want more committee seats on, on things like the Rules Committee. Um, and in ways and means and more in other important committees in the House so that they can have more of a say and to craft legislation in a more conservative direction. Um, so if you have Jordan running for speaker, that's a whole block of votes that you are withholding from McCarthy and Scalise. And you have Scalise okay. and McCarthy sort of jockeying to be more conservative. Like, for instance, Scalise says that he's in favor of impeaching Rod Rosenstein. 
Um, that's in, I, that happened today, which was interesting. So the, they're they're all trying. I'm sorry, to, I, I I missed that. Scalise came out in favor of this. Yeah, I I believe it was Washington Post that reported that because I saw that that Ryan came out against this. Yeah, so it was it was within a couple of minutes. I think Scalise. Um, negotiated with the Freedom Caucus. I, they might be getting a vote. I'd have to read up on that. But I did see that he supports it, whereas Ryan said during his presser that he did not. Okay, very briefly, where, where is that going, if anywhere, the, the, the Rod Rosenstein impeachment? is it? Uh, will, it will it ever come up for a, a vote or a committee hearing? Probably not a hearing. Um, it's possible it could come up for a vote, but I don't. it's probably not happening in the near future because they just left for recess. Um, so maybe in the September after the August recess, but it's it's unlikely that it's ever going to happen uh, just because it's a very small set of very hardcore Republicans who want to show subset their support. Of a, of a subset. Okay, yeah. <laughs> David Ballard, you, you have been uh, crunching the numbers about uh, the midterm elections looking at the United mm-hmm. States uh, Senate. And uh, let's, you know, for, for our listeners, you went through the methodology um, that, that you are using here. It's a, a combination of data points. So before we get to the uh, Republican uh, versus Democratic chances of, of controlling the Senate, just go through the data points that go into the swing seat model. Right. So what the swing seat model essentially does is it looks at where public opinion is now. Uh, it takes in information from past elections, it figures out how much public opinion is going to move, and then it makes a probabilistic projection of how we think the race is going to turn out. So if things look really close in a race, then the swing seat model might say, oh, this is pretty close to 50-50. And it does that, and if things are really lopsided, it might say, oh, this is more like a 90-10 sort of race. So it, it figures that out based on how things have gone in past elections for every individual Senate race. And then it looks at the aggregate. It thinks about uh, what would happen if the polls all sort of shifted towards one party or the other pretty uniformly. It thinks about scenarios where that may not happen as much. And it generates a bunch of different simulations. And in the end, what you have is probabilities for overall chamber control for both parties, uh, projected number of seats based on what we know now, uh, and individual sort of state-level readings for all the contests that are going to happen in the Senate this November. Okay, now, now we're going to get some sense. How do you think about, or how should we think about, the uh, the varying polls that have come out in the last uh, week or so, you know, particularly the, you know, there were, there were a couple of polls suggesting that uh, the Trump's approval ratings uh, had gone up, and then of course you had the Quinnipiac poll coming out uh, showing that he was uh, he was down to 38 percent, and and we've had a series of state by state polls uh, also showing the uh, the, the president uh, un- significantly underwater, particularly with. With women, uh, suburban voters, do do, do does, are you factoring in? Is that changing your analysis? I mean, has it changed the the, the meter at all in the last uh, seven days? Right. So the Senate head-to-head polls and the presidential approval polls are part of the swing seat model. When we have head-to-head polls, we basically rely on those, and we use presidential approval as sort of part of our calculation to fill in the blanks. So. That's the long version of the answer. The short version of the answer is yes, um, we're, <laughs> we're looking at those. Uh, the model, basically basically what I've learned from looking at past data and what I've programmed into the model is that right now, if you're looking at Senate races, it's good to take a long view 
of the polling and not overreact to sort of more recent data points mm -hmm. and that it's good to sort of weight your polls based on past accuracy. So, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, I think it was uh, SurveyMonkey released a big poll and we integrated that, of, you know, a big poll of a bunch of different races and we integrated that into the model, but it got less weight than some other polls because SurveyMonkey wasn't among the more accurate polls of 2016. So hmm. you sort of weigh all those factors together and then you get estimates that, you know, seem to work when you test it against past data. Hmm. So who are who are your who's your gold standard poll? Who who would be the top three that that you would weight the most heavily? I don't know who the the top three are off the top of my head. I can tell you that Monmouth University, um, the Washington Post, mm -hmm. and Fox News all run really excellent polling outlets. I did you know kind of some some complicated to math math to get the exact readings, but just based on my knowledge of those polls, I'm you know, pretty sure that they're close to the top of our rankings. And what about the Marist poll? Um, Marist. Yeesh. I'm not sure off the top of my head with no, some the, of these. Uh, yeah, Quinnipi yeah, sorry Quinnipi about Quinnipi that. Quinnipiac. I mean, most of these polls, like, you know, Quinnipiac or Marist, most of them kind of fall in the middle. Uh, our weighting system here is relatively conservative. And by that, I mean that if you have a poll that's really highly rated and, you know, is really accurate. It pays more attention to that, but you have to also be uh, really pretty inaccurate, or I guess you would say you'd, you'd have to have uh, some issues in some past elections in order for it to be downweighted. So we, we weight by accuracy, okay. but we try not to overweight if that makes sense. Okay. So you know, with, with all of that, you know, lead up to this. Um, w as of today, what are you projecting? What does the swing seat model project? And again, it's it's right. only a projection as of today, as opposed to a prediction of what's going to happen in November. But as of today, what does it say? Well, I mean, it's it's prediction of what it thinks is going to happen based on everything we need to know, uh, or be, based on everything that we know today, is that Republicans have a 72.7% chance of holding the Senate and it guesses that about that the Republicans will have about 51 seats mm -hmm. after November after the November elections are all resolved and everything like that there's a significant amount of uncertainty in those numbers people think of uh, probability like you know 73 percent and they think oh wow that's so high but you have to remember that if you you know flip a coin twice and <laughs> both of it and it comes up heads twice that's 25 percent that sort right. of thing happens a lot so there's well we all live the through the 2016 yeah. election we all right. we all live through that so. <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly exactly and you know the 51 seats uh for republicans is the outcome that it thinks is the most likely but it also says that you know up to 55 seats for the republicans or up to 51 seats for the democrats are totally realistic outcomes based on what we're seeing right now it has you know more outcomes out to the side further than that okay. so so but, the the yeah. the, 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 mo the most likely um republican pickups would be yeah so the most likely republican pickups based on what we know now are north dakota and indiana that mm -hmm. intuitively to I me camp and makes uh, sense. Donnelly. yeah 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 Pike Camp and Donnelly. And uh, that's based on the polls. That's based on what we know with, you know, sort of our whole set of data. And uh, that makes sense to me, because if you think about 
the uh, Democratic incumbents who are holding red states. Uh, North Dakota is a very red state. I mean, Heitkamp's a good candidate who is still making this a race, but it's just hard to overcome the baseline partisanship of that state. Same goes for Indiana, uh, West Virginia and Montana. The model is yeah. actually uh, pretty high on the Democratic candidates. And that's because Tester and Manchin have been polling really well. Uh, they they seem to be so far at least breaking away from the sort of the baseline partisanship of their states. And it has Missouri as essentially a pure toss up. I mean, mm. it's 55 percent probability of a McCaskill win, uh, mm. 45 percent probability of a Holly win. That's that's not as close as you get, but it's pretty close to it. And what about Florida? Right. Florida's uh, about as close as Missouri. And the run that I did last night that's currently posted on the site, it's 54.9% uh, probability of a Nelson win. So basically Nelson and McCaskill at about the same level, according to the model. Okay. And I asked you what, what the most likely uh, Democratic pickups uh, were. I'm sorry, the most re likely Republican pickups were. What are the most likely Democratic pickups? Right. Arizona is mm -hmm. the most likely Democratic pickup. Uh, that's about four to one odds of a Democratic pickup right now. Cinema has uh, really been outpacing a lot of her Republican rivals. That might change after the primary happens, um, but it also might not. That's that's kind of how these things go. The next most likely one is Nevada. Uh, mm -hmm. Democrats sort of have a two to one advantage there. Uh, that's one where the incumbent Republican, Dean Heller, has been kind of widely cited as in trouble. And beyond that, the next most likely one, Tennessee, is very close. It's 53-47. Uh, and we've had kind of odd polling in Tennessee that's all over the map. There are a bunch of polls that have Phil Bredesen, the former Democratic governor, with kind of a small single-digit lead. There's, uh, you know, SurveyMonkey had uh, his Republican opponent, Blackburn, up by 14 points. So the models kind of, when, when you have polls that have a large spread, the model becomes a little bit less certain of what's going on, which I think is kind of the right move. But after Tennessee, uh, it gets really tough for Democrats. Uh, Texas, Ted Cruz is about 84% or wins in 84% of simulations. And um, beyond that, you get some really solidly red states. Yeah. Now we don't uh, we don't have uh, all the detail numbers, and I have a hard time uh, tracking all of the congressional seats. So uh, Haley Byrd, wh what is the mood um, among House Democrats and Republicans about uh, about who will be in, in control of that chamber in in January? It really varies depending on the district, but most Republicans are fearing a lot of backlash over Trump and other things. But I mean, some numbers have hit, picked up for some of them. So. Um, it's very up in the air right now. I think after this recess uh, in August, when they go home to campaign in their districts, we'll have a clearer picture of where their heads at, heads, excuse me, heads are at, um, and what they're expecting. But uh, right now, it's sort of like a fight for your life sort of situation. Well, let me ask both of you this question. You know about the the the, the knowns and the un unknowns here. You know the the big elephant in the room is you know let's say that Bob Mueller comes down with something big, one way or another. Does that shift the does that shift the dynamic significantly, or is it already sort of baked in because of sort of the tribal nature of of our politics? David, yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know how don't polling know on voter works. <laughs> <laughs> that that that's a big question. Uh, what I would say, and what we do know now, is that 
a lot of the sort of poll questions that you have consistently asked about uh, Russia, you know, do you approve of Trump's handling of Russia, um, things along those lines are oftentimes split along partisan lines. So if Mueller comes down for something, uh, comes down with something that, you know, looks very bad for uh, President Trump and for the Republicans, then, yeah, I think we could see a significant shift even further away from them. You know, Democrats have been leading by six to eight points in the generic ballot uh, for a while now. And you could see that increase, which would be bad news for both House and Senate Democrats. Uh, I'm not sure what happens if Mueller comes back and says something that's sort of uh, better for Trump and the Republicans. You could uh, think through scenarios where that sort of demoralizes Democrats and helps Republicans. And you could also think through scenarios where, you know, Democrats still dislike Trump on issues A, B, C, and D that have nothing to do with Russia, and the dynamic only changes so much. So, I mean, you know, that's the I, sort know, of I, wrench in the system that is is makes forecasting any of this really hard. Well, exactly. I mean, I can I can certainly very easily imagine a scenario in which Mueller comes back with something that is uh, that is that is damaging. The Democrats overplay their hand, and that that uh, Republicans rally around more intensely. That they think, oh my God, our president is going to be impeached, um, and this actually has sort of a backlash sort of uh, of, of motivation. Now, uh, Haley, I want to ask you this: uh, the the generic ballot. Um, and I'm always I've, I'm admitting that I'm a, always been a skeptical about the, the this generic ballot, but it's it has been relatively consistent, six to eight point uh, Democratic lead. Is that where the Democrats want to be, given the inherent advantage that Republicans have with redistricting? Well, I think any advantage they could get, they would be happy. Um, no, they'd rather be ahead than behind. Exactly. And of course, they'd rather be more ahead than they are now. And uh, like what, what David was saying about Russia, it, sometimes it doesn't really resonate with voters. Um, so a lot of Democrats are planning to just talk about health care and just slam that it, like over and over again on the campaign trail, because that is an issue that a lot of voters care about. And it's an issue that's mainly unresolved since the Republicans didn't fully repeal Obamacare and they didn't like pass a, a replacement in, in, in any way. So they got rid of the individual mandate. Uh, they've done some tinkering, but um, it's still a problem for a lot of Americans. So that's that's the Democratic playbook right now. Uh, we'll see if that's successful. Yeah, and of course we have the Kavanaugh nomination, which is going to be hanging fire, and there's going to be tremendous pressure on a m number of those red state Democrats, uh, including the ones that uh, David said were the were the most vulnerable to vote for Kavanaugh. Um, and and again, you know, when you, when you throw in something as volatile as the future of Roe versus Wade at the end of a campaign like this, who knows how it's going to play? Hey, the uh, Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by RX Bar. Uh, RX Bar set out to create a new kind of protein bar with a few simple, clean ingredients where every ingredient serves a purpose. You know, basically, you know, RX Bar are like eating three egg whites, two dates, six almonds. They're gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, no added sugar, artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. Egg whites are a source of protein that's easy for your body to absorb, and the dates are there for the binding, the ingredients, the nuts add the texture. And But RX bars come in 11 delicious flavors. And, and as of recently, there are three new flavors, mango pineapple, I have not tried that yet, peanut butter and berries, and chocolate hazelnut. They also now offer RX nut butter made with the same core ingredients as RX bar protein bars. 
And the new nut butters include a base of nuts, egg whites, and dates, giving you nine grams of clean protein. They're available in honey cinnamon, peanut butter, peanut butter, vanilla almond butter. I'm getting hungry just thinking about all of this. Look, they're, they're great for a number of occasions. Breakfast on the go, snack at the office, throw in your bag for the plane. You know, if you're going and you're having to sit through a three-hour long Senate hearing, you know, this would be the kind of thing you might want to have um, along with you. And I, I always take them when I when I travel, you know, particularly when I know I'm going to miss a couple of meals. Look, there's a special offer for the listeners. For 25% off your first order and free shipping, that's free, visit rxbar.com standard slash standard or enter promo code standard at checkout. That's rxbar.com slash standard or enter promo code standard at checkout. Okay, so Haley Bird, what should we be watching over the next week in the House of Representatives? Now, you said they're, they're just, they're gone now on, uh, on, on, on recess. Does that mean things calm down on, on Capitol Hill for a while? Yes, it will be a lot slower. Um, it, there will be a lot of news about campaigns, and some people will probably say stupid things during debates. Uh, but in the Senate, they're going to be focusing on on uh, this nomination of Kavanaugh, as well as trade. Uh, I think that's definitely going to be an issue um, that they'll be hammering a lot. When do, when do we expect the Kavanaugh hearings to take place? Because that's going to, you know, that will dominate the news cycle for at least a full week. I'm not entirely sure of dates, but I know they're trying to um, either finish by Labor Day or conclude hearings by Labor Day. So it it'll be this fall. Wow, that's that's a very that that is an ambitious that's an ambitious schedule. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much under these circumstances. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.